listening to the Outburst Arts Podcast, brought to you by Outburst Queer Arts Festival, Belfast's annual Queer Arts Festival and Queer Arts Development Initiative. Join us for conversations, ideas and performances from queer writers, artists, thinkers and doers, and check out more about our work at outburstarts.com. Hello there and welcome to a virtual event for the 15th annual Outburst Queer Arts Festival. It's a great pleasure to have this conversation in partnership with 14 Poems. And I'm very happy to introduce now Ben Tony Canning, the editor who will get things going. Thank you, Michal. Uh, I'm Ben, I'm the editor of 14 Poems and we publish uh, an anthology of queer poetry three times a year. It's such a joy to have uh, these three exciting Irish poets with us. We have Michal McCann, Rosamund Taylor and Podrick Regan. Uh, each have been published in our books, which is uh, even more exciting. I can't wait for you all to chat and read and uh, hear what you think about queer poetry at the moment. Um, should we just get started and go straight in with a reading? Should we start with uh, Rosman? Rosman, do you want to read your poem from our latest issue, a Postcard from Kalani? Sure, yeah, that would be a pleasure. Um, I'll get started. Postcard from Killarney. Irish Citizenship Ceremony, 2018. Outside Mallow train station, Milena practices the oath she'll swear to the Irish state. A thin rain works into our eyes, under our tongues. Around us, languages overlap. Urdu, Cantonese, Arabic, Czech. On the bus to Killarney, we crowd three to a row. I press cold face to cold window. Mist rolls into mist. Brown valleys whisper past us, hushed in leafless birches. Milena grips my hand. At the convention centre, queues coil back and forth through the car park. Water sloshes inside my boots. I'm tempted to join the Romanian family, nestling under five umbrellas. I used to ask Milena if she missed Gorzhov, but as she rests her head on my shoulder, I know her answer. A small boy hurtles into our knees. We laugh and steady him. Two questions echo all around. Where did you come from? How long did you wait? Thanks so much, Rosamond. It's such a wonderful, beautiful poem. I'm so pleased we were able to publish it. And also what I love about these events, even if it is digital, is getting to hear you read it as well and getting a new insight into it. Um, do you want to start just telling us what, what sparked the poem? Yeah, well, um, Milena, my wife, and I did go to the Irish Citizenship Ceremony in 2018. Um, and it was a really important experience for both of us. But I think partly what started this poem was because I was sort of thinking about the poem as a journey and how the poem often brings us to kind of a place of surprise or revelation or kind of a new emotion. And I saw that kind of as a parallel with the literal journey we took to the citizenship ceremony in Killarney. Um, and kind of what surprised me as I was working on it was how much I saw a connection between the journey to citizenship and a sort of queer journey to self-acceptance. I know, and it's such a, it's, it's so interesting you say that because I find it quite hopeful in its terms yeah. of queer acceptance and, and also sort of a cultural uh, melting pot of all the different people coming and choosing to, to be Irish. Yeah. Is that, was that your intention to get some sort of sense of hope in quite yeah. turbulent, dark times, I guess? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it was, it felt really hopeful when we were, when we all went to Killarney and you're kind of, you're on this train that is quite a small train going to Mallow, which is not like a very big international hotspot. And there's people from so many different nationalities on the train with you. And then you get to Killarney, which is a place that we sort of sell as, you know, the traditional old Ireland that tourists come to and it's full of hotels. And it felt like there was just this wonderful intersection between an old Ireland and a much newer and more vibrant kind of Ireland. And that, you know, they were both really in harmony in this moment. And I think also like what made me feel really happy was that it's a real privilege to see 
like a thousand people who really want to be in the country where you just happen to be born. And you're kind of like, wow, you suddenly really appreciate that. And that was really moving as well. I think that's so interesting, the idea of Ireland and how it's how it's um, changed in quite mm. recent history. And I think we'll go into this with Michal and Podrick as well. But I'm thinking about the same-sex marriage um, uh, vote uh, or referendum, rather. And it is this country that was considered older and, and traditional mm. and conservative. And it's it's sort of much more radical these days, which is quite an exciting place to be, I guess. Radical might be a bit strong, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's an exciting place to be. I want to talk a little bit about the um, intimacy that you create in the poem as well. There's something so soft and gentle. There's something unspoken as well. Do you want to talk a little bit about the power of keeping things unspoken? There's sort of questions not answered Mm. Um, it ends with two questions hanging in the air. The idea of letting the reader find their way through the poem. Um, yeah, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think for me, what I don't say in a poem often takes as much thinking about as what I do want to say. Um, and when I was working on this, I really wanted to sort of capture the atmosphere of this day. And that was why the word postcards became important to me, because I wanted it to feel like kind of, four postcards that tell you something, but they don't give you everything. And I found that the more I sort of pulled myself back and let each postcard speak for itself, um, the more the poem kind of shone. It was like I needed to get out of my own way. Um, and I think also a lot of this, like it is in some ways a political poem. And I think when you're writing about something political, the more you step back from actually saying what the political point is you want to make, the more kind of poignant and moving the poem becomes, at least for me. And also, I just want to give people room to kind of think about things in their own way. Yeah, I love that. And I love the the idea of the postcard, this sort of message sent from the present island rather than this sort of idealised, picturesque, yeah. um, rural, traditional, conservative island, that island's a new place, which is exciting. Um I mean, talking about intimacy, I'm going to bring in Michal now to uh, read his poem because his poem also has such a beautiful, intimate, same sort of thing, a gentle conversation uh, between two queer lovers. Michal, do you want to do you want to read it and then we'll bring you into the chat? I'd love to, yeah. Um, this poem is called Confirming What We Knew. We are lying together quietly as the night becomes morning when you ask me, where do I look for beauty? You hunch two fingers into a wrinkled rabbit to make your sardonicism clear, an elfish smile in the dark. And I think your pleased sigh meant there was a simple answer that had sailed over me while I sank into cartoon thought. A six and a half foot lad with thighs as tight as harp strings, with a chest so firm, with rolling terrain to lollop down, in the long train carriage of a penis, intimidating, decontextualized, like a beech branch lying on the path or the sorry yard just resting underneath this window. My heart that belches butterburrs, colt's foot, open mouth trillium. No difference, I reply, in the GAA fella and the wine fade shade of the weed that clambers through your gravel garden. You pause and what when the coffee cup is empty, I say, and stained along the blue enamel's rim. Will beauty know the twitch of my eye means, here we go? Or where I'm at my saddest with all those glittering people around me? Heaven is a garden, you'd say, and while roosting fragrant beans, I think. And what about all that time between now and then? Thank you so much. I mean, in a similar way to Rosamond's poem, it sort of stands back and doesn't give any concrete answers. It also deals with... Um, sort of slightly uh, uh, politics in a way, like sort of dealing with queer politics and cultural politics, I guess. Um, and also the intimacy as well, the closeness between these two people lying in bed dealing with big meaty issues without actually saying this is a poem about a meaty issue in the same way that Postcard from Kalani um, does. Do you want to talk about where yours started from? Yeah, I first just want to say I, what Rosman said really resonated with me about... Um, when a poem is like a political core and you're not like articulating it. Um, I guess when it's not didactic, 
that's the kind of uh, I guess that's what I'm attracted to in a poem as well you know it's like um it obviously feels very urgent but um it's up to the reader to pierce through that rather than you go to them I think that's important um what sparked the poem um well there's a few things um particularly I should admit I think normal people had started to air around the time when I wrote this poem <laughs> um but coupling with that I think I was reading a lot of um I was reading bits and pieces of John Keats as well as um, Philip Larkin and Kieran Carson, which I think is reminiscent of the long lines, probably. Um, and I just kind of started to think about um, beauty with a capital B and then physical beauty with a small b and how they're conflated um, in not always, you know, queer circles, but, um, and I just kind of love the idea of writing like an obad about two people having a conversation about that you know I think that's what I'm uh, I don't know if I could write like Ode to a Grecian Urn or whatever like that with a skull in my hand but I just like the idea of positing it as a kind of quietly put conversation that's almost like a joke I mean it's like predicated on a stupid joke really you know <laughs> that the person that the person was speaking to would meant thought oh you're going to tell me I'm beautiful and then the speaker's like you know ponderous so I, I love that it's, you know, um, and again, a bit like Rosamond's poem, the sort of dealing with um, canon of uh, poetry and sort of um, uh, queering it, subverting it in a way. You know, Rosamond's poem talking about love and marriage and and then a subversion of that in its very nature and, and here as well, I think, is subversive, especially because that clash between beauty and gym perfection and and everything in queer culture is is so prevalent. Is that, especially queer male culture, is that something that um, you wanted to address as well? Yeah, I guess so. I guess maybe like um, that kind of uh, physical beauty and aesthetic beauty are conflated in a way that's wrong. I just think, you know, like, like I think what physical beauty really is closer to is like cosmetic attractiveness. Whereas like, I think writing that I'm interested in kind of sees aesthetic beauty everywhere or whatever so I just I just kind of wanted to maybe put that across in a poem and also I think trouble it a little bit at the end and see what the limitations of beauty were be that physical or aesthetic you know when it's just about two people knowing each other um and uh yeah and also doing good work for GAA shorts and some <laughs> uh, well, normal people did <laughs> uh go on with <laughs> First sponsor poem, um, <laughs> yeah no um no the, yeah sorry Carol I don't know what I was gonna say there I I think uh, one of the things I love is the it's rejection of simplicity it sort of isn't like this sort of beauty is bad this sort of beauty is good it leaves it up to the reader in the same way I was talking just now with with Rosamond as well you you mentioned sort of Keats and it really reminds me of Philip Larkin which I know we've discussed. Um, before uh, that idea of duality in poetry I mean I love that because you want it to be sort of you want to be able to wade in it and work it out yourself is that something you were aiming for mm. I mean I guess so that's that's the thing I'm really attracted to in 14 poems in general like the contributors no one seems to be like you know saying here is the grand take you know I think it's so individual or something I don't know maybe if that's like a um a facet of being queer or being a queer writer but um yeah I think it's like that open-endedness and maybe like confusingness as well you know like I don't think that conversation in that poem resolves in a way that makes sense and then you go back to the title and then you say like well what was confirmed and things but there's like a spirit of play maybe and not having to tie things up or that would be my philosophy anyway yeah and I like that spirit of play because there's a cheekiness to it you know it's Keats and Larkin are dealing with beauty and you are as well dealing with the big issue but also you know talking about a lollop and penis in GAA shorts it's like a, a, a cheekiness that open-endedness and <laughs> that open-endedness and looseness I want to bring you back Rosamond here because your yeah. final two lines of your poem where did you come from how long did you wait the idea of leaving those hanging in the air was it a similar sort of thing to me that you want people to um, find their own way through it I think so yeah I mean I think it's interesting because those are literally questions that everybody asks when you're waiting in these queues for the citizenship ceremony. 
Um, so it is a very literal question, meaning, you know, how long did you wait to get the letter saying you could become a citizen and where did you come from? But at the same time, those two questions, whenever I heard them, seemed to have a much broader meaning. And I think as queer people, we often question our identity and what we mean by identity. And so I wanted to kind of leave those questions there and just let people think about what they might mean to them rather than kind of trying to answer them myself. I love that. Yeah, the idea that our, our identities, we're still sort of forming them as we yeah. as we leave the sort of teenage years and still trying to find out who we are and where we are in the world. And the reflection of that is, is so powerful. Um, I, just I think wanted we're to often ask, really open to kind of transformation and change in a way that maybe people who have always felt very confident about their identity aren't. And I think that kind of ties in with also changing your citizenship you're able to say well I'm not just this from this one country I can be from multiple places yeah and having these different identities uh, uh, at all times um I want to bring Michal back here just to talk about uh, a final question about yours before we bring Podrick in um would you say your poem is hopeful there's a sense of beauty fading there's a, a beautiful image of the empty coffee cup becoming stained along the blue enamel's rim. I, I find Rosamond so quietly celebratory and, and hopeful. Would you say yours is hopeful as well? I think so. I think so. Um, I mean, to quote Judge Judy, um, beauty fades, uh, or to partially <laughs> quote Judge Judy. But no, but, you know, like, I think um, putting that across, I don't think is necessarily, you know, it's a fact. I don't think it's a pessimistic fact. Um, I think, well, what I hoped the implicit conclusion of that poem would be is that, you know, there's a period of time that's shared between two people. Um, and that kind of, the length of that time isn't um, indicated or delineated, but it's thought, you know, if beauty's there or not, time's there. Um, but um, that would be my, uh, yeah, I think that's hopeful, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I find it hopeful. And I also, you know, the three, the holy trinity of poetry uh, Philip Larkin, John Keats, and uh, Judge Judy. They're clearly <laughs> the, the three most important. It's so funny um, with like Irish, Irish poets in general, because um, like there's such like a strange influence line. I wonder what everyone else thinks about this. You know, uh, like, I remember when we first had a conversation, and you remarked about Philip Larkin. I kind of I didn't recoil, but I was like, because mm. you read these people, and like, for example, you know Philip Larkin being famously like I guess blue let's say amongst a lot of other <laughs> more problematic things but, but it's funny how like even those kind of very canonical voices perforate down even into like queer writing like I, I you know I really was surprised when you remarked on that you know um yeah when it sort of percolates down I think it's so uh interesting I love Philip Larkin although there are um issues and he's also uh Absolutely miserable, obviously, which is uh, probably why I fell in love with him when I was a teenager. Um, <laughs> but I think it does sort of percolate down into 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 your art, I guess. And we'll go into maybe get the three of you to talk about some of your heroes um, as we talk through this. But I just want to bring in um, Podrick now. Um, your poem, Katsu Iku Adori Dom, which I love. I still haven't eaten the dish that it's about, uh, even though I published it in uh, issue three, I think. Um, and uh, I love Japanese food. Do you want to read the poem and then we'll we'll go through that as well? Absolutely. Do you want me to translate the title before I read it? Yeah, that'd be perfect. Okay, so Katsu Ika Odori Don, um, the best translation for this would be something like um, dancing squid rice bowl. Um, that's meant quite literally. Um, what this dish is, I think, is fairly apparent in the poem, so I'm not going to um, explain it too much. I'll just read it. Katsu Iga Udori Don. I know what animates this bunch of tentacles. It's just the salt in the soy filling the blanks in the dead nerves. I tell myself this, but as the gif keeps looping through the same few frames, the same pattern of flicks and wiggles, it's difficult to not imagine necromancy, or worse, the dumb protest of a lump of brainstem. At any moment, I could stop this wonky eight-limb Charleston, not by eating it, but by closing the tab. I tell myself this, 
Is it empathy that's stopping me? A sense of duty to bear witness and attend to the whims of the dead, no matter how random? Not quite. Maybe it's envy or aspiration that keeps me watching. But do I envy the hand that pours the sauce and turns this stump of a squid into its own erratic puppet? Or aspire to be as pliable as the, as the clump of tissue that receives its grace? If, as the physician says, the soul weighs 21 grams, it seems important that we find a way to figure out how much of this is sodium, and therefore how much of us is lost in a fit of crying or passed back and forth throughout a night of sex. It will take perhaps a minute for the last shutters to peter out and the tentacles to lie still again. I want to know, is it best to wait before you start the process of dismantling the legs with your chopsticks? and testing each one for its flavour? Or is the reciprocity of your tongue's movements part of the pleasure of the dish? When the time comes, feel free to keep a limb of mine and drench it with soy if you feel lonely. Thank you so much. I mean, I love these poems so much because I think, you know, when someone says, oh, here's a, here's a modern Irish poet, and they're just so <laughs> different and dealing with such you know, radically different things. But also, as I've said earlier, dealing with the big issues mm -hmm. in a very um, understated way. In this case, you know, going straight into sex and death, which, uh, you know, the, the two biggest of all, perhaps. Um, and we've talked about this before, I know, Podrick, and we've talked about the it sort of acts as a memento mori. Are these themes of death and, and sex uh, prevalent in other pieces of your work or other parts of your work as well? I think so, um I think it's become more so um, in the book that I've been writing for the last few years, which um, is coming out uh, early next year. Um, and I noticed a while ago that I was writing a lot of poems about objects or bodies um, that were in states of decay or, or states of material collapse. Um, and I'm not entirely sure where that came from. Well, I, I can trace some of um, the reasons why I'm interested in these things. Um, but one that I was wondering about is... Um, is that in some way reflective of the time in which I was writing this book? Uh, the majority of the poems in my book were written between about 2017 and 2020. So I guess in a state of general societal and environmental collapse. So I think perhaps that is one reason why, um, as I have gone on, I've become more interested in, I guess, writing about not just death, but decay um, and, and material disintegration. Um, and I also wonder if part of it is my way of reckoning with um, the history of the north of Ireland. Yeah, it's, uh, sorry, I thought you were going to yeah. uh, go into it then, and I think we don't need to go into it. I think it's such a, a, a known thing. But yeah, it's a, uh, a complicated and all-encompassing um, issue, I guess. Uh, is that fair to say? I, I like the idea of this idea of the grotesque and, and decaying. I think it connects to being queer in a way as well, sort of as we get older, as we were talking earlier with Rosman about finding your identity and then the realisation that sometimes it's it's too late. It's We've missed a whole passage of our life while we've been um, sorting what's going on in our head and uh, working that out. So I think that's quite a, a prevalent theme across a lot of queer poetry that I'm really drawn to as well. Um, the body and the grotesque, you know, queer culture, bodies are quite key things. I want to bring in Michal as well, because we sort of touched a bit on that in your poem as well. Why do you think they're such uh, key themes, I guess? Either of you. <laughs> oh, um, okay, so I'll go first. So I, um, I have a, a deep interest in the idea of the grotesque and the grotesque body. Um, and I mean that in the sense that uh, Mikhail uh, Bakhtin talked about the grotesque body as a body that overflows its boundary, um, a body that leaks, a body that um, is penetrated, a body that, um, I guess, is sort of full of holes, that is provisional. Um, and for me, that is th that is the queer body. Um, you know, this is a lot of the same stuff that Butler was talking about in um, something like Bodies That Matter. You know, when she talks about um, does the gender distribution of pronouns make any sense outside of a matrix of heterosexual desire, outside of a particular relationship of penetrator and penetrated. Um, so for me, the exploring the grotesquery of the body um, is a way into, um, I guess, thinking queerly about the body. Um, and I think 
for me, it is um, particularly at the moment, I'm interested in trying to think about new ways of thinking about embodiment um, for all sorts of reasons. And because I think that the idea of the body as a separate, closed, sort of hermeneutically sealed system has done a lot of damage in our culture. And um, I think it is one of the roots of a lot of homophobia um, and a lot of misogyny as well. Um, I think at this particular moment, um, you could also extrapolate ecological concerns from this, and um, that it's also about recognizing our deep mutual dependence and interpenetration with all other forms of life on this planet. Yeah, and no, I, th I think that's so interesting. I just want to talk a little bit about the soul as well as a sort of flip side of that, this idea that you deal with in the poem about um, if, as the physician says, the soul weighs 21 grams. And so it seems important way that we find, it seems important that we find a way to figure out how much of this is sodium and therefore how much of us is lost in a fit of crying. The idea of this physical form that we're obsessed with and actually there's other stuff going on as well and, and it, we're all, it's all interconnected. Do you want to talk a little bit about that as well? Mm, yeah. Um, so in case it wasn't clear in the poem, um, Katsu Ika Odori Don is a dish of very, very fresh uh, squid tentacles. Um, so the, the squid is generally killed just before it reaches the table. And then when soy salt it, or when soy sauce is poured on it, the salt um, causes chemical reactions in the nerves and in the muscle tissue, which makes it sort of dance and, and twitch. Um, and I saw a gif of that and realized that that was such an obvious and perfect symbol for all kinds of, I guess, um, Carthusian or, uh, yeah, Carthusian or Carthusian thinking about um, the soul and the body, the material and the immaterial. Um, and I guess I have my own particular opinions on that. Um, but in the poem, I'm not necessarily interested in saying there is no such thing as an immortal soul, um, but more interested in just playing with the concept of it. And then I find this um, amazing fact about, a, a, I think it was a 19th century French physician who weighed people immediately before and immediately after death and found an average um, difference of mass of about uh, 21 grams. Um, so he came up with this mad theory that that was the weight of a human soul, um, which is such a, an incredibly um, wrong-headed way of thinking, you know, <laughs> um, because the only justification <clears throat> for believing in a soul is that it is outside of material existence. So then to apply um, a physical unit of measurement to it um, is ridiculous. And in a way, actually, mm, this may or may not work out, um, but I wonder, is there something kind of poetic about that? You know, in the way that poetry attempts to structure what is essentially unstructurable, um, is his act of trying to divide or trying to um, work out a mass of the human soul. It is that same kind of impulse, that same kind of desire to find order and find meaning where there is none or to impose meaning or order where there is none. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting because obviously the poem does that. It tries to, it, it's a dish of squid, but it, it imposes a lot of, like all poetry, imposes a lot of things uh, onto that. And is that, um, a, I would obviously say this is a, that's a useful and helpful way of addressing lots of our issues, but it's a it's a struggle. And that's the the tension, I guess, in poetry is, is that I really enjoy. Mm -hmm. um, I, I want to talk about food poetry a little bit. We've published a lot of food poetry. Uh, maybe I just like eating. That's why we publish a lot of it. But uh, I think there's something that is so um, communal, something about queer food poetry that's really interesting. Do, do you want to, what is it about writing about food that sparks imaginations, do you think? Mm. Um, so speaking for myself, like I could give a bit of a history of my own interest in it. And for me, it started um, some years ago when I was thinking a lot about 17th century Dutch painting um, and how a lot of those images used depictions of food and particularly um, excessive amounts of food as a way of thinking through economic ideas. Um, over time, for me, that developed more into thinking about the body. So the act of eating is something which forces us to confront the fact that our bodies are provisional. They are not stable. They are not impenetrable. We take things in and those things that we take in become materially the body. Um, I wonder perhaps more generally, and you know, I don't want to speak for other people, of course, um, but I think food is not always, but very often um, a way of approaching intimacy. You know, to, to cook for someone is an act of generosity. To be cooked for is, um, I don't know, to find oneself in this strange position, which is kind of powerful. Um, you know, you're being served, but also kind of vulnerable in a way. 
Um, so then I think, you know, thinking about this in, in queer terms, um, the preparation of food, the giving of food is something that allows um, for intimacy outside of socially accepted structures. So I know, of course, a lot of people have deep food memories to do with the nuclear family. Um, but, you know, it is just as easy to cook for a lover, you know, as it is for your children. Um, so it is, I think, a kind of... Um, well, a, a kind of transferable act of intimacy, you know, um, one, one that can create intimacy in all kinds of different potentially queer uh, dynamics. Yeah, and I love that. I love it's a combination of that basic need that we are just, we basically need this food, otherwise we'll die. But how it transcends to such richness, this caring for someone, this closeness, this intimacy. It's such an overused term, but this chosen family that yeah. queer people have you know, food is integral to that as well, I think, as well as, you know, people have issues with it and complexities. It links into to everything. Um, I mean, I, I must admit, when I'm, when I read all three of your poems, I do factor food into them weirdly. I sort of, obviously yours is food. Michal, I always think, you know, they're lying in bed, they're eating their toast. There's crumbs on the sheets talking about the big issues. And then, you know, at a, at a citizen ceremony, um, citizenship ceremony, with uh, kids playing around, you're eating a donut. You're waiting for your turn. You're eating, a, you know, an egg sandwich or whatever. I, I think I, in my head, all three of these poems are connected by that. So, uh, it, purely from my own sort of scene setting, I do want to talk about Ireland with all three of you as well. We touched touched a little bit on Northern Ireland, um, Podrick, with your poem. Obviously, Rosamond's poems set in a very specific place in Ireland, and you know the GAA shorts. Uh, definitely uh, lock it in in Michal's. How important is Ireland and a centre place to all your poetry? Rosamond, should we start with you? Sure. Um, I think an Irish identity is something that's been changing an awful lot in the last 20, 10, 20 years. And for me, the idea of a traditional Ireland was never very meaningful. Um, but I think, and I think I often felt a bit alienated because I didn't feel like I mean I'm not I wasn't brought up a Catholic so I felt quite separate in a lot of ways from a lot of kind of cultural touchstones other people had um but I think as I've got older I've kind of felt that there isn't any one way to be Irish and I've been more aware of Ireland as kind of a space that's become more accepting of people like me and more able to talk about issues that for a long time were kind of swept under the carpet. So I think that's something that probably comes across in my work, um, that there's kind of, I feel quite joyful about a lot of change that's happened in Ireland. And then at the same time, there's also kind of the weight of negative change, both global and uh, national, such as you know, increasing inequality, the loss of biodiversity, stuff like that. Yeah, and it's it's the country is, I guess, moved from its um, links to a colonial power that screwed it over. Let's be honest, uh, <laughs> and then moved to a sort of European um, position, which is such an interesting, empowering movement. You could um, perhaps say. Uh, Michal, do you want to talk about Ireland and place in your work? Yeah. Um, what These a, feel what like a... like big old questions. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> my hair my hair blew back when you asked that question. Um, <laughs> I'm really drawn to um, landscape, and I guess I think that is probably probably like if you cast your way through like Irish lyric poetry of the past, that's like the kind of main currency of it obviously um i've just been thinking recently like when you decide to write a lyric poem in the irish tradition as a queer person are you like inserting yourself into a tradition that hasn't had a space for you before or are you carving out your own unique kind of recess um in the cliff face i don't know um I think my descriptive instinct is towards landscape as opposed to pastoral because I think pastoral stuff's kind of boring a wee bit. But um, yeah, I, I just think, but no, it's not just like, I think, sorry, let me start that again. I think um, 
the landscape has been like a figuring place and a thinking place for like a lot of those kind of very huge Irish voices. You know, like I'm thinking of like mountainscapes or Donegal, I think, Paul Mattern, um, the poet who edited um, Queer in the Green talks about this quite a lot, that Donegal is like um, like an intellectual space. But then I wonder when it becomes the space of these kind of largely white male um, cisgendered heterosexual men, what happens when there are people who don't fit under that caveat, you know? So I think maybe by quietly, as opposed to screaming and shouting about it, but writing into those places and describing those places, that's how I imagine. Um, I do like that that two senses of um, the traditional Irish poetry. Like, are you subverting it by creating poetry in that form or are you um, reinforcing it by doing it? Should we yeah. be creating some new form um, and something that, you know, should we destroy the system and start start afresh or is that impossible to do? Does anyone want to chime in about that? Yeah, I will, um, because I think it's kind of, um, does have a lot of bearing on my thinking about uh, place and landscape in poetry. Um, so I guess one thing I will say is like, I'm not necessarily interested in place. Um, I'm interested in landscape as a method of depiction, um, as a, an intellectual and artistic tradition. Um, and I think like Michal was saying, I'm quite interested in um, tracing the ways in which particular places or landscapes have been depicted in the past. Uh, and trying to do something with that um, with that tradition. Um, so I think of um, some of what I do with landscape as um, trying to ironize the tradition from within, um, but doing so like in the knowledge that it has already been ironized. Um, you know, I think here we have to talk about um, Paul Muldoon, Maeve McGookie and, and Kieran Carson. Um, so three poets who, you know, came about a generation after Seamus Heaney, Michael Longley and um, Derek Matten and immediately started ironising and taking apart the kind of stable or more stable assumptions um, in those older poets' work. Um, so I think that for me, there is a lot of potency in that idea of trying to do something with the Irish lyric from within rather than stepping outside of it. Um, although I think that is also a perfectly valid um strategy and um, it, it's not the one that I use um like if you look at Maeve McGookian for example one of my absolute poetic heroes like Maeve McGookian's work is deeply radical um in all sorts of levels you know politically ra radical um and linguistically radical and formally radical um in ways that are you know bound up with feminism and colonialism or, or anti-colonialism um so I think uh I will always kind of reel against these ideas that the lyric tradition is essentially moribund. You know, I understand that there are parts of the tradition that have been conservative and have been put to conservative use. And um, for me, it's just a more effective strategy to try to move that along from the inside. Yeah, and just by including queer stories, queer mm. existence, queer theories within this traditional form, I mean, as poetry as a whole, unless you're doing, talking about really radical um, uh, free verse, but I think putting centering queer identity in these traditional forms can can be really powerful. I think, um, and I think we see that with all all three of your poems, actually. Um, um, I maybe would have a, want to push back on that ever so slightly, and um, because I do wonder what is the efficacy of simply inserting queer material into forms which are themselves heteronormative. And mm. um, so for myself, like I never, I, I don't have a huge amount of interest in writing about queer subject matter or queer narratives. Essentially, for me, I'm much more interested in thinking about how do you embed queerness at the level of language, at the level of syntax, at the level of form. How do you make it a way of seeing? Um, rather than a thing which is looked at, um, because I think that there are potentially problematic or potentially um, unhelpful consequences of subjecting queerness to heteronormative gaze. Um, yeah, that's and that's that's interesting. The idea that you're reinforcing sort of toxic mm. um, uh, systems mm. um, potentially at such a pivotal moment as well. Do, do any do either of um, Michal or Rosman, want to chime in on that at all? Um, I think there's sort of a spectrum of ways in which you can engage with kind of the heteronormative past of our of poetic work and what we do now. I think 
it can be very, it can feel very radical to read a poem that's in many ways engaging in a very traditional way with the landscape or with a poetic form, but that is, uses queer, um, kind of queer language or queer parts of life. And I think there's something very powerful about just including how you live and what your life is without remarking on it as anything that's particularly other. Um, and I think that can, um, I think that can be very powerful. And that is kind of on the other end of a spectrum where if you have a different end, you have people who are very radical in the way they use language and in the, in the way that they engage with the poetic form itself. Um, and I think both are really interesting. Yeah. I, I find it so energizing that there is a spectrum of queer methodology in Irish writing now, you know, I think that's the most energizing fact of all this. Um, there's yeah. more than one of us now. <laughs> it's not just Richard Murphy and that's it. <laughs> I mean, do we want to talk a little bit about why that is? Because there is this burst of queer poetry. Um, in Ireland, I mean, the amount of Irish poems we get sent covering a, a wide variety of queer culture, queer life, um, but also beyond, I think, uh, here in the UK, but also in um, uh, in the US. And, you know, we've seen a lot from Nigeria. And what do you think, this is a big old question, but why do you think queer poetry is is burgeoning, is, is not burgeoning, is blossoming, is doing so well? Um, and where do you think that's come from? Michal, you can go first. Uh -oh. <laughs> Chucking the big one at you. Or feel free to say you think there's no queer poetry blossom at no. all um, in my head. <laughs> I just wonder, has it been um, gradual since like the beginning of the AIDS crisis in the 80s and the beginning of um, the publishing and also arguably the marketization of queer experience, you know, like um, in many ways, like when people started to read about the experience of people who had AIDS and then queer life was kind of um, started to be documented. So I just wonder, has like, have, have things grown? Um, has like a culture been created where, whereby they can be received? I think that's the thing. It's like, it's like absence doesn't imply conservatism. It's just that there's not like platforms or receptacles for that kind of work. It's unfortunate that there had to be a, a human healthcare crisis for that to happen. Um, but, the, but the marketization thing's interesting as well, because I think, there's certain like um, publishing cycles and spheres where I expect certain things of queer writing as well. That's something I'm kind of tentative about. Um, yeah, like it's like you have to write about desire for it to be queer. You have to write about your, you know, so it's it's peculiar. So it's not, it is definitely blossoming obviously and it's so exciting, but um, I think you see quite a lot of the same, uh, not only subject matter, but approaches to subject matter um, as well, which is maybe I think is, part of the structural problem as opposed to the individual problem you know yeah and I, I you know speaking from my perspective that is interesting because lots of people assume a book about queer an anthology of queer poetry is purely about sex um and sex is integral to everyone's lives potentially uh and we get a lot of we've published a lot of queer poems about sex but you know i think podrick what you were saying earlier about there's nothing inherently queer about your poem, but at the same time, everything about it is mm. queer. At the, at the at the same time, do you want to do you want to talk about the blossoming of queer poetry and and where you feel um, you sit in that? I guess. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so, I wonder when we talk about a blossoming of queer poetry, we can't ex we can't um, extract that um, from I guess a blossoming of queer thought and queer culture more generally. Um, which I guess is the culmination of a you know a long civil rights m movement and and process. Um, I guess over the last hundred hundred twenty years, we might even go back that far. Um, so I think it is in one sense a kind of social inevitability. Um, you know, from the moment that queer people kind of started describing themselves as such and, and uh, 
becoming visible or more visible, well, that was kind of going to keep increasing exponentially. Um, I also wonder, is it, um, and I have nothing to back this up, um, but I wonder, has there been, I guess, a general movement of queer thought um, from the margin to the centre, okay, particularly within the academy? So when you think about in the early 1990s when people like Eve Sedgwick and Judith Butler um, and uh, you know Jack Haberstam um, were inventing this new discipline of queer theory, um, to what extent is that discipline now become not just normalised within the academy but beginning to slip outside of it? Um, so I guess that there is a kind of... Uh, intellectual um, and artistic hinterland that some of that work provided. Um, I, I don't know if that is relevant at all, um, but it may be something worth thinking about. I think that's interesting. I think the combination of that that 90s stuff and then the 80s post-AIDS crisis, the, how that led to honesty because things had to be documented, that sort of combination has maybe created this fertile... Fertile ground, Rosamond. What do what are your thoughts on um, the blossoming of queer poetry? <laughs> I think, as um, Michal and Podrick have said, it's really interesting that we now have more than ever. We have kind of queer work that we can build on, and we can have queer sort of the queer ancestor figure that we can draw from. And I think that makes a really big difference to how confident we feel about our work because we have. A kind of a whole range of writers that we can think about and you know we can kind of say you know Tom Gunn talked about this so I can respond to that or disagree with that and I think that's something that maybe I was talking um in a in a kind of podcast with um the poet Richard Scott and he was talking about how you know, he didn't feel like there was any kind of queer ancestor when he first started writing, except for maybe French writers like Verlaine and Rambeau. And I was thinking that was almost true for me as well. Like, um, maybe around, you know, 2008 or so, when I first started really thinking about poetry and writing, I'd be there getting Rambeau out of the library and that would be about it. And I think that makes, and even if there were more queer writers, it just was really hard to know about them. And now there's just so many names that we can draw from. And I think that just makes me feel so much more confident as a writer that there's so many different aspects of queer life that I can talk about. Um, I love that so much. Go, sorry, Padre, go on. No, I was going to say, I was really interested in something Michal was saying there about the marketization of queerness and queer writing. Um, so I wonder, and I don't want to sound like a horrible pessimist here, but I think that there could be... Um, could it be that part of the recent flourishing of queer poetry and queer literature in general, if we agree that such a thing has happened, um, could some of that be down to the fact that, um, I guess, a sort of neoliberal economics has finally managed how to deal with queerness, or at least mm. homosexuality, um, or at least you know different sexual orientations? Um, you know, is it that um, there always has been queer writing going on? Of course there has. It's just that now the economic system in which we live is no longer threatened by it or by a lot of it. Um, so it is able to, I guess, bring queer writing into the market more um, rather than perhaps previously it existed more in, I guess, a kind of coterie setting mm -hmm. um, or was insulated from market concerns in a way that it isn't any longer. Yeah, that's really interesting because I think, you know, past stuff where it's, was coded or it was um, secretly known. And I'm thinking about, I know we talked about um, Gerald Manley Hopkins this week, Michal, um, and Wilfred Owen and all these people in the past, D.H. Lawrence dealing with homoeroticism in some way. They were things I was clinging on to when I was sort of uh, late teens. And now I think you're right. Like the world knows how to deal with these mm this queer thought in a way it didn't before and people can be more honest and open and unfortunately that can be exploited yeah. as well. Um, I'm thinking about, I love the book um, Cleanness by Garth Greenwell. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I've got the worst memory ever. Um, 
and how that is really explicit and explicitly queer, but became the book for straight people to read. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, that people really wanted to read. And I, I think that's a really interesting dynamic because it opens lots of doors, but at the same time, it dilutes some thought. Would would you agree with that? I'm Thanks. so intrigued you brought up. Oh, so Rosman, sorry. No, you go ahead. <laughs> um, sorry, here's me just like ramping up there. But that's interesting you draw that example because we're talking about marketization of queer writing. What I think happens in contemporary publishing is it's not queer um, thought. It's often gay thought. You know, like best-selling queer books are usually depicting gay experience. Let's be perfectly honest. And, you know, everyone's read Giovanni's Room and no one's read The Well of Loneliness, you know? Um, mm-hmm. I, I had the pleasure talking to Sarah Shulman for um, the Outburst magazine that's being published next week. And in it, you know, she is like a you know, cult legendary figure in queer literature. And she said, yeah, well, um, no one acquires lesbian fiction. Full stop. But you would assume from looking at America bestsellers that that is the case. And, you know, you have Deep Transition Baby and stuff, which is extraordinary. Um, but... I don't know, it's it's an anxiety I have that um we we are I think sometimes we're being tricked into thinking that there's this grand liberation going on, but I don't know, I just sometimes think with like the poems you see sometimes and the novels and the memoirs and stuff. I don't know. I don't know mm. if the balance is totally fixed. I know I, I I agree with that and I think it um plays into what Podrick was saying as well, that we're sort of like queer. Queer thought is everywhere, and it's it's white gay men uh, on the whole. Um, go on, Michal. No, to, to be fair, what Podrick's describing is very much queer thought, <laughs> to be fair. Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> to be clear. <laughs> no, you are you right, um, and I, I should have perhaps been a little bit more careful in my terminology. Oh, no, no, I right sorry. A lot of the stuff that has become... Um, for want of a better term, mainstream um, or, or has been successfully integrated into the market um, does tend to be gay. Um, I think it's also um, much easier, I guess, at this current moment, I think it's easier to um, market things about our books about sexual difference rather than gendered variants. Um, I know you mentioned Detransition Baby, but that is still something of an outlier. Um, and I want to pick back up on what you were asking there, Ben, about um, whether there is a dilution of of thought. Um, and I don't want to say that there is, because to be honest, I don't read a, a huge amount of fiction. I haven't read the book that you're talking about, the Garth Greenwell. Um, but I've been reading recently some books um, by writers who, I guess, were part of the new narrative uh, grouping or movement at the late 80s, early 90s. So reading things like um, Marjorie Kemp by... Um, Robert Gluck or The Art Lover by Carol Masso um, and thinking about the radical things that they are doing with the novel form. Um, And those are not books that even today, you know, would be bestsellers. Um, Although perhaps the Robert Gluck one did relatively successful when it was reprinted, but it's a kind of cult classic, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I yeah, I just think. Um, sorry, I wasn't. I wasn't suggesting that you were. Uh, I was suggesting that um, people talk about queer thought, and actually, not you, as in yeah. straight people talk about queer thought and say, "Oh, I'm a queer ally. I've read so much queer literature, and they've read books by white gay men." Yeah. That's my yeah. point. I was, I was, I was making. But it's a really interesting. Um, it's a really interesting point of time to be in, where there is this crossover of acceptance and, and dilution the x and the y graph i guess uh, yeah i think the marketing is really interesting because i think it it allows like if you're looking at all the different kinds of books and um my wife works as a children's librarian so i often see kind of what the children's books that we get now about queer themes are and you have everything from like lots of the books would be presenting a very normal kind of a very like these are two white gay men who have a child and they're kind of presenting this to a presumed sort of cis straight audience and saying like this is okay too and then but then at the same time we get in like truly beautiful books like Julian is a mermaid which is about a little boy who sees some women in beautiful costumes and thinks he wants to be like them and which is really much a much more radical queer idea And I think it's interesting because 
I don't think that book would have been published if we didn't have so many kind of quite boring books for children. But at the same time, it means that there's only a very limited number of books that are actually queer and interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And the idea that, yeah, getting away from this um, uh, aspirational view of queerness being cisgendered, two men married with a child and a a job and and as Podrick was saying about you know environmental collapse and and mm. uh mm. and you were talking about the economic complexities in the world and inequality you know mm. actually the diversity um of viewpoints needs to be factored into that yeah. um I do want to read Julian as a mermaid though is that what it was called oh yeah that's fabulous very much recommend <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna buy that for all the children in my life um <laughs> I wanted to uh, end with, so when we do our Instagram chats with 14 Poems, we uh, ask our poets to read a poem by a favourite writer. Uh, Rather than doing that this time around, I do want the three of you to to tell me who your um, favourite queer Irish poet is or someone you could recommend so that people listening to this who want to delve in further... Um, can find someone new to read. Um, Rosamond, should we start with you? Sure. Um, if we weren't doing this with Porig, I'd probably be recommending them. So just to get that uh... out there. <laughs> but, um, Thank you, my love. <laughs> um, I was going to talk about two of my two poets I really admire, um, Anne-Marie Curran and Jane Clark, who are both poets who write about sort of the Irish landscape and the history of Ireland in really dynamic ways and really interesting ways and kind of grapple with very negative aspects of Irish history, but also write about very the landscape in a very beautiful and very kind of queer way. Um, and I think they're both very good at kind of getting across what Ireland can be as a specific place. And I find that very interesting. Uh, Porig, what about you? Okay, um, I think I would perhaps say, um, or someone I would really recommend is Paul Mattern. Um, I have a lot of love for Paul. Um, He was actually the first person to ever teach me creative writing at Queen's, um, and he's since become a good friend. Um, And I'm not just saying, I'm not just recommending his work because he is one of the loveliest people I know. Um, I think his work is really extraordinary, Um, especially his last book, which was called The Tipping Line. Um, which is a long, uh, big, book-length poem, um, which is kind of rangy. It goes into a lot of different places. Um, one of the sort of recurring themes in it is um, Bermuda's involvement in the First World War. Um, Paul was brought up in Bermuda, has lived in, in Ireland for some years now. Um, and there's lots of other things in there as well. There's a whole section about um, the film Gods and Monsters, which is a biopic of the director James Whale, a queer filmmaker in um, early 20th century Hollywood. Um, I think it's kind of representative of I guess, the the deep care and the deep thought that is in Paul's work. Um, you know, Paul is someone who is very much aware of his poetic antecedents, um, both as an Irish poet and as a queer poet, um, and does really interesting things situating himself in that. Um, like Michal, was it your Rosamond was saying earlier about um, Donegal? It would have been Michal. Okay, Michal. yeah, yeah. Um, so one of the things that this book does is... Um, at least the first section of it and the last section is um, set on the on Donegal, so the west coast um, of Ireland, which is you know a particularly historically loaded place. Um, and he does these really interesting things of queering that landscape, um, a lot of which is through sort of looking at it as landscape. There's a kind of weird obsession with stagecraft in the book as well. Um, it's it just it's a really you know deeply thoughtful and, and complex work um, that I think everyone should read <laughs> amazing and paul's uh edited queer in the green yeah uh, right yep. which yeah. is part of outburst festival which leads us nicely onto uh michael who would you who would you recommend it would have to be colette bryce the dairy poet um naturally um i <laughs> i think well i think colette's extraordinary and she writes, you know, the emigrant, the emigre experience, you know, like she's that amazing poem, the full Indian rip trick. And it's sat in like Guildhall Square and Derry. And it's basically, she's articulating like why I have to leave being the person that I am. Um, I think it's so incredible. And, and the way she like 
it's just you know surgeon like I think in her poems you know the, the, I think it's her third book maybe let me I think it's her, th- her third book um called self-portrait in the dark um, and there's all these poems throughout them where she actually like she creates these self-portrait poems where ones were lit by a cigarette or ones in like a broken wing mirror. And there's just all these incredibly sharp occupations of different kind of perspectives that I just find absolutely enchanting. But um, I, I encountered her work when I left Derry for Belfast. I think she went further afield. And um, yeah, I just think, I remember just thinking that um, I was reading a lot of Belfast poets and things and then, I just encountered her work one day. I was like, it just felt like such a revelation. It still does. Her most recent book, The End Pages, is just frighteningly good. Um, so yeah, that would that'd be my recommendation. They are uh, all very exciting choices that I'm sure people listening will be very uh, excited to to read more from. Thank you very much, guys. And thanks for this chat. What a joyful moment to be in. Joyful slash complex. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but it's uh, wonderful to hear such diversity of thoughts and um, such uh, interesting viewpoints on queer poetry. It's always wonderful to hear your poems because, you know, I love all three of them and more of your work as well. So thank you. Thank you so much. Really heartened by the prospect that we'll all be in one room as well in um, a week's time, around a week's time, next week. Yeah. Can't um, wait. Yeah. I need uh, I need you to show me Belfast because I've never been. So <laughs> very exciting. Thank you very much for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Outburst Podcast, created with support from Arts Council of Northern Ireland, Paul Hamlin Foundation, and Belfast City Council. For more great conversations, videos, and news, check out our website at outburstarts.com. Thank you.